Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our foot and ankle lecture series. In the last lecture, we talked about fractures of the talus and the calcaneus. This lecture will focus on fractures of the midfoot, including the navicular and cuneiforms and cuboid, as well as Lisfranc injuries and fractures of the metatarsals. All right, let's get started with navicular fractures. Remember that the navicular bone articulates with the three cuneiforms, the cuboid, as well as the talus. When it comes to navicular fractures, there are two rather broad fracture categories. Navicular fractures are either acute and traumatic or stress fractures resulting from chronic overuse. Stress fractures are common in running athletes, particularly if they participate in sports that take place on a hard surface. They are seen frequently in baseball players and basketball players. Patients will typically complain of pain at the midfoot that is worse with weight-bearing and strenuous activity. The pain may have been going on for some time as a lot of these patients present in a delayed fashion. They may have some slight swelling and a positive end sign, which is tenderness with direct palpation over the navicular bone. AP lateral and oblique foot radiographs should be ordered. However, most navicular fractures can be quite difficult to visualize with these modalities. Advanced imaging may be required. An MRI would be the most sensitive imaging modality to detect a stress fracture, which would be seen as increased signal intensity on T2 images. Patients with navicular stress fractures are treated with immobilization in a non-weight-bearing short leg cast for six to eight weeks. The most common complication of a navicular stress fracture is non-union. Patients that fail conservative management may require an open reduction internal fixation. Traumatic navicular fractures can also occur with several different fracture patterns. Cortical avulsion fractures occur at the insertion of the talonavicular capsule following a twisting or plantar flexion injury. If less than 20% of the articular surface is involved, they can be treated non-weight bearing in a short leg cast. However, if there is any instability or greater than 25% of the articular surfaces involved, the patient will require an open reduction internal fixation. Evulsion of the tuberosity at the insertion of the posterior tibialis tendon can also occur during a resisted eversion injury. Again, non-displaced fractures can be treated conservatively, while fractures with greater than 5 millimeters of displacement may require fixation. Lastly, navicular body fractures can occur with an axial loading mechanism as the tailor head is driven into the navicular bone. Non-displaced fractures involving this pattern can be treated conservatively and followed frequently with serial radiographs. However, any displacement will require an open reduction internal fixation. For navicular fractures, I would say really understand and be able to recognize stress fractures, how they are diagnosed and treated. These are much more commonly tested than the acute traumatic type navicular fracture. Next up, let's talk about Lisfranc injuries. So first, what is the Lisfranc ligament? The Lisfranc ligament is probably the most tested ligament in the foot and runs from the plantar aspect of the medial cuneiform to the plantar aspect of the base of the second metatarsal. Again, it goes from the medial cuneiform to the base of the second metatarsal. This ligament is crucial for stabilizing the midfoot arch. There are three bony articulations that make up the Lisfranc joint, the tarsometatarsal, the intermetatarsal, and the intertarsal articulations. Remember that there are three cuneiforms, the medial, middle, and lateral cuneiforms. The middle cuneiform is recessed in comparison to the medial and lateral cuneiforms. This allows the second metatarsal to key into this recess. This is the so-called keystone configuration, and it increases the overall stability of the Lisfranc joint. So again, the second metatarsal is keyed into a recess between the medial and lateral cuneiforms, thanks to the recessed position of the middle cuneiform. And the Lisfranc ligament is running from the plantar surface of the middle cuneiform to the plantar surface on the base of the second metatarsal. 
So furthermore, there are plantar and dorsotarsal metatarsal ligaments. The plantar tarsal metatarsal ligaments are stronger and connect the middle cuneiform to the second and third metatarsals. This configuration improves the transverse stability of the joint. The last anatomic concepts we should touch on when discussing the midfoot is the column structure of the foot. The medial column is made up of the first tarsometatarsal joint. The middle column is made up of the second and third tarsometatarsal joints. And the lateral column is made up of the fourth and fifth tarsometatarsal joints. The ability to recreate these columns is important when discussing reconstruction procedures of the foot. So exactly how do Liz Frank injuries occur? Liz Frank injuries are generally the result of a rotational force combined with axial load being transferred through the plantar flexed foot. This forces a dorsal displacement of the metatarsals relative to the tarsal bones, and either a pure ligamentous dislocation or a fracture dislocation occurs. Patients with a Liz Frank injury present with pain at the midfoot and an inability to bear weight. A key testable physical exam finding is ecchymosis on the plantar aspect of the foot. They may be significantly swollen and a thorough neurovascular exam should be performed to ensure they're not developing a compartment syndrome. The tarsometatarsal joint complex can be tested for joint stability by placing a dorsally directed force at the base of the second metatarsal and assessing for dorsal subluxation. Any medial or lateral subluxation is also indicative of global instability. Don't even think of trying to do this in an awake, acutely injured patient, however, unless you plan on getting kicked. Evaluation begins with AP, lateral, and oblique radiographs of the foot. Weight-bearing radiographs that include the contralateral, uninjured extremity for comparison may also be necessary to diagnose a purely ligamentous injury. Radiographs should be assessed for any widening between the first and second rays. A bony fragment within the first and second intermetatarsal space is known as a flex sign. The flex sign represents a bony avulsion fracture at the attachment of the Lisfranc ligament on the base of the second metatarsal and is pathognomonic for a Lisfranc injury. On the AP radiograph, the medial side of the base of the second metatarsal should align with the medial side of the middle cuneiform. And on the oblique radiograph, the medial side of the fourth metatarsal should align with the medial aspect of the cuboid. On the lateral radiograph, you should look for any dorsal displacement of the metatarsal relative to the cuneiforms. A CT scan can be useful in the setting of severe comminution as seen in a crush injury and for preoperative planning. If you suspect a purely ligamentous injury and radiographs are non-diagnostic, an MRI can be ordered to help confirm your diagnosis. So now how do we treat Lisfranc injuries? There have been several questions in the past focused on the treatment of Lisfranc's. Stable injuries with no displacement, in other words, mild sprains of the ligament, or injuries in non-ambulatory patients can be treated conservatively. In other words, nearly all of these injuries are treated operatively. There has been debate with regard to the optimal treatment between open reduction internal fixation versus primary arthrodesis. With primary arthrodesis, generally only the first, second, and possibly third tarsometatarsal joints are fused. The fourth and fifth are stabilized acutely with K-wire fixation if displaced, but they are not fused. The goal is for stabilization of the medial and possible middle columns while allowing the lateral column to retain motion. Open reduction internal fixation is generally reserved for Liz Frank ligament injuries with bony fracture dislocations. Primary arthrodesis of the first, second, and third tarsometatarsal joints should be utilized for purely ligamentous injuries and chronic injuries. Primary arthrodesis and open reduction internal fixation have similar functional outcomes. However, 
arthrodesis has a lower rate of revision surgery and subsequent hardware removal. Chronic injuries that have developed arthritis diffusely across the midfoot will require a complete midfoot arthrodesis. Complications of the Lisfranc injury include post-traumatic arthritis, chronic pain, non-union of an arthrodesis procedure, and symptomatic hardware of screws left in place. So for Lisfranc injuries, know the anatomy, medial cuneiform to base of second metatarsal, be able to recognize it clinically, including the telltale sign of plantar ecchymosis, know that there's a risk for compartment syndrome, and the radiographic parameters. Remember that open reduction internal fixation is generally reserved for fracture dislocations and primary arthrodesis for purely ligamentous injuries and chronic injuries. All right, next up, let's talk about metatarsal fractures. Super common and relatively easy to treat, so we'll just blaze through this section. First, a quick anatomic review. The first metatarsal bears 30 to 50% of the weight during gait cycle. The second metatarsal is the longest and has the most common occurrence of stress fractures, and this commonly occurs in ballet dancers. The distal intermetatarsal ligaments that connect the second to fifth metatarsals maintain the alignment of the forefoot and are a possible site of compression for Morton's neuroma. The first metatarsal is the most commonly injured in children, and the fifth metatarsal the most commonly fractured in adults. So how do patients with metatarsal fractures present? They usually present in one of two fashions, either a direct trauma to the foot causing an acute fracture or a history of chronic overuse leading to a stress fracture. They will have pain over the forefoot and when weight-bearing. In the setting of an acute fracture, ensure that the digit is not malrotated on presentation. The initial diagnostic study of choice are plain radiographs. Plain radiographs of the forefoot are usually all that is required to make the diagnosis. However, in the setting of a stress fracture, an MRI or bone scan may be required to help with visualization of the fracture. Most times, metatarsal fractures are stable injuries and patients can be treated with a hard sole shoe or walking boot and made weight bearing as tolerated. Caveats to this are the first metatarsal and multiple fractures of the lesser metatarsals that are now unstable and generally require operative fixation. Overall, length-stable fractures can be treated with K-wire fixation, and length-unstable fractures may require plates and screws. Alright, how about the prima donna of all metatarsal fractures, the fifth metatarsal base fracture? The mechanism and treatment of fifth metatarsal fractures is dictated by the zone of injury. Zone 1 fractures are also known as pseudo-Jones fractures. This is an avulsion fracture of the base of the fifth metatarsal caused during a hind foot inversion injury. What muscle inserts on the base of the fifth metatarsal? The peroneus brevis. So these injuries may be due to an avulsion from the contraction of the peroneus brevis or an avulsion caused by the insertion of the long plantar ligament or lateral band of the plantar fascia. Regardless, patients with zone 1 injuries can be treated with protected weight bearing in a hard sole shoe or walking boot. Alright, next, let's skip directly to zone 3. Zone 3 injuries are of the proximal diaphysis of the 5th metatarsal distal to the articulation between the 4th and 5th metatarsals. These are seen commonly as stress fractures in athletes, as well as conditions that predispose to overloading of the lateral border of the foot, such as a cavovarus foot deformity. Treatment for zone 3 fractures include non-weight bearing in a short leg cast for 6 to 8 weeks. Sometimes, in elite level athletes, these fractures will undergo operative fixation. There is a significantly increased risk for non-union in this area, as the blood supply in this area is not as great. However, it does have better blood flow than zone 2. Alright, lastly then, the star of the show, Zone 2 Fractures, also known as Jones Fractures. Zone 2 Fractures take place at the 4th and 5th intermetatarsal articulation. This area is in the vascular watershed between the metaphyseal artery and the diaphyseal artery. The vascular watershed places these injuries at an increased risk for non-union. 
Zone 2 fractures can be treated non-weight-bearing in a short leg cast in recreational athletes. However, in elite-level athletes, these tend to get fixed with an intramedullary screw. Complications of fifth metatarsal fractures include a failure of fixation and non-union, and this tends to be directly correlated with returning to sports prior to radiographic union. All right, for metatarsal fractures, remember that most can be treated conservatively, with the exception being the first metatarsal fracture, multiple lesser metatarsal fractures, and fractures that occur in zone 2 at the base of the fifth metatarsal, also known as Jones fractures, in elite-level athletes. All right, that concludes our lesson on forefoot fractures, including Lisfranc injuries and metatarsal fractures. This is also the final lecture in the foot and ankle series. As always, please check back to this particular lesson for any updates or modification to the lecture. Thanks again for listening.